All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction this morning. Our Father, You have given us Your Word to enlighten us, to bring us out of darkness into light, and we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the light of Your Son through faith alone in His death alone. And Father, now that we are sons of light, as the Scripture says, we're to walk as children of light. We're to walk in the truth, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And as Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our soul so that we can come to understand fully that which you have revealed to us, that we might come to understand who you are as well as understand more clearly who we are, and all that you have done for us to save us, and now what you are doing for us to save us from the power of sin in our own lives and to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we just pray that as we sit here today that we've come to worship you and to learn about you, that your word will not fall upon deaf ears, but that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each one of us how we need to apply these these principles that you've revealed to us, the truth of your word, that we might be transformed, uh, not conformed to this world, but be transformed more and more into those who reflect your thinking and who honor and glorify you in every area of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've got a show-and-tell item for everybody this morning. Some of you watched several weeks ago, about a month or so now, when uh, we went to Preston City Bible Church, and they celebrated their 200th anniversary. The church was originally founded, I, I believe, about a couple of years before they built the current building, and that was in 1815, uh, so that's the date they chose to uh, celebrate their 200th anniversary. And so there were several pastors and interim pastors that had been invited back to speak, and they had a Bible conference that that week, which I really encourage you to listen to if you get a chance, because one of the things that Pastor David Rosen uh, envisioned as he set that up was to help some of the newer people in that congregation to understand the identity of a Bible church. Who are we? What do we do? Why do we do the things that we do? And what makes us different uh, from other churches? And also what makes us the same as those churches that have often been identified with biblical truth and, and biblical orthodoxy? And so if you go through and you were, and you listen to I think there were about 10 or 11 messages, you'll get a great understanding of the heritage 
that we all share and coming out of the 18th and 19th centuries and why, as a Bible church, we have certain, certain distinctives. And at the end of the conference, they gave a present. It was quite a surprise for each of those who came and spoke at the conference. And it was a Roman gladius known by the Greek term Machaira. And this is a genuine Machaira. And it is sharp enough to cut paper. So I'm going to set it down here after, uh, after class. So if you want to come up and take a look at it, uh, you may, but be careful with the blade. It, it will cut you. Okay. Now the reason that's important is because in Ephesians chapter six, when Paul is teaching about the fact that we're all involved in this, in a war, we're involved in spiritual warfare, a war against invisible powers, against demonic forces, that our defense is to put on the whole armor of God. And the only part of that uh, armor that can be used as a counterattack is the Machaira, which is called uh, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Machaira of the Spirit. And so this is a is chosen by God to represent His Word. It's our weapon. Uh, that we use to defend ourselves against the attacks of Satan and the world system. So take a look at it afterwards, and and uh, we'll, we're going to figure out some way to to mount it and display it so that people can uh, can see it. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. What we're going to continue to see, as we have seen, is Jesus teaching about gr- God's grace. But teaching about the need, in the past we've seen teaching about the need for genuine humility, that in order to become a disciple, one must be humble. Now, that's not a requirement for salvation. requirement for salvation to be justified, to have eternal life and an eternal destiny in heaven, is simply to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he's the promised, prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament, and that by faith alone in Christ alone we have eternal life. Now that phrase is an important phrase. Faith alone means that we don't add works either on the front end or the back end of the gospel. Now, a lot of people understand you don't add works on the front end of the gospel. It's not a salvation by, by believing in Christ plus reforming your life. It's not a salvation by believing in Christ and being a member of a specific denomination, for there are some denominations that believe that, that they and they alone will go to heaven. It's not a belief that in, in, in the cross plus uh, baptism, and there are some denominations that hold to baptismal regeneration. Now, that's not what Baptists believe. Uh, Church of Christ believes that, that you're baptized and uh, that is part of salvation. You have to believe plus something. So we don't believe that you are saved by faith plus anything. In fact, if you add anything to faith, you destroy faith, you nullify faith. Faith is focusing on Christ as the merit for our salvation totally. His death on the cross is that which is meritorious. Faith is not meritorious. Faith is something anybody can do. 
and just as it's demonstrated, pictured by in the communion meal by eating or drinking. Anybody can eat or drink, and it's it's used as an image of taking something in or receiving something, accepting a gift. And that's that's what salvation is. It's faith alone, but it's faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith alone in Christ alone. He, he alone is the object of our faith. Now, when I said earlier, we don't add any, any works to the front door. We don't add works to the back door either. And there's a whole group of people, uh, Christians, going back for hundreds of years, if not millennia, that emphasize that genuine faith, true faith, real faith, saving faith, is evidenced by works. And that if you don't have works consistent with faith, then you don't have the right kind of faith. And these folks even teach that you can have a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. This view is generally referred to as lordship salvation. And there are quite a few people who teach this. And John MacArthur is the most well-known out of Southern California, and that there are many, many others that have been influenced by him. And he didn't originate the position. It goes back... Uh, it goes back to a lot of uh, uh, legalistic uh, different denominations and legalism in the 19th century, often influenced by the theology of the Puritans, the English Puritans of the 17th century, American Puritans of the 17th and 18th centuries believed this, that, that you couldn't really know that you were saved unless you had works that were consistent. And you look to the works, not to Christ, for your assurance of salvation. So some people have called them experimental predestinarians. In other words, the only way you knew if you were of the elect was if you had the right kinds of works. But you see, we don't put works on the front end or back end because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And works, that is the application of God's word, only comes after you've learned God's word, after you have been born again. So if somebody believes in Jesus, all they ever hear is the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, and they believe that, but they never hear anything else, like the thief on the cross. They're saved because they believed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for us. And that's the most important issue that any of us can resolve in life, is the issue of our eternal destiny. But there's another challenge to those who have trusted in Christ as Savior, and that's the challenge of discipleship, to grow and mature, to become a spiritually mature believer so that your life can glorify God, so that you can achieve God's plan and purpose uh, for your life in terms of your, your walk with him, your life with him. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this, uh, this, this uh, section of Matthew, in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 18. He's talking to believers, not, a, not about how to become a believer, but how they should live as believers, the kind of mentality, the kind of mindset, the kind of character they should have, and how they should relate to each other, and that's fundamental. So when we come to a chapter like this, or any chapter in the Bible, we want to ask the question, to whom is the writer speaking? Are they writing to believers or to unbelievers? And, of course, we know that in any audience there's always some unbelievers, 
But the writer is writing to the group as a whole, and he's talking to them as believers. And that's what Jesus is doing here. We're told, uh, just in terms of review, that the disciples came to him, and they wanted to know which of them would have the highest rank in the kingdom. So they're asking a question related to the, the future kingdom. Now, one of the things we have to clarify, as always, is that in Matthew, the kingdom always refers to the millennial which refers to the thousand-year rule of Jesus as the Messiah on the earth. It's a physical, geo, geophysical, literal kingdom, and he will reign from Jerusalem. It's in fulfillment of, of uh, hundreds of prophecies, probably a couple hundred prophecies in the Old Testament related to Israel's restoration to the land, the uh, Davidic king sitting upon the throne. It's the fulfillment of the eight, full. It's a complete fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It's a fulfillment of the new covenant, all coming together when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. But when Jesus came, as we've studied in Matthew, he came to offer the kingdom. The Jewish leadership rejected his claim to be Messiah, rejected the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, or Matthew 12, Jesus took the kingdom away from them. And in Matthew 13, he started teaching his disciples in parables in order to sort of cloak the truth from those uh, from whom it was being taken. And so from that point on, Jesus is really beginning to prepare the disciples for his death, burial, and resurrection, and then in some ways for the coming church, although his, his real teaching on the church doesn't come until the upper room discourse in John uh, chapter 13 through, uh, through 17. So the the... Focus on the kingdom here is something the disciples, as we see, still haven't figured out that it's going to be postponed. It takes them a while. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is just about to lift off to ascend to heaven, the last question they ask is, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? They still understood it as a literal geophysical kingdom, and Jesus didn't change, didn't correct them. He just told them it's not yet time for you to know the times and the seasons. Now, Jesus continues to teach them about different aspects related to discipleship. And in this chapter, we've seen that he takes this little boy and uses him as a training aid. And it's important to understand that when Jesus first takes him, he's using him as a, as a visual aid to teach this principle related to the question, who's going to have rank in the kingdom? And in that culture at that time, children had no position, no place, no rank, no... The children were not only uh, better seen and not heard, they were better not seen and not heard. And they were just... They were nothing in the culture. They were completely ignored and overlooked. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of mentality you need to have. That's the point of connection, the point of the analogy between a child and uh, a little child that would be a disciple. So he's talking about humility in terms of not asserting yourself for rank or privilege, that that's what it means to become humble like a little child. And then he's going to shift from talking about uh, this physical little child to where he's no longer talking about physical children, something a lot of commentators and people miss, although there are a lot that do not, that recognize that there's a shift that takes place, and now he's talking about the spiritual little child, the spiritual the disciple who has humbled himself like a little child. So from this point on, when he talks about this little child or these little ones, he's talking about not physical children. 
He's talking about uh, disciples who have become like these little children. They've humbled themselves, and it's important to understand that in terms of where we're going. So from this point on, the term little child or little one no longer refers to the physical child, but to the disciple who has humbled himself and is a humble, growing disciple of Jesus. Then Jesus warns that there are serious consequences related to causing such a humble disciple to to have a blowout on the spiritual highway, to be completely derailed in their spiritual growth. And this is demonstrated by a, a significant set of words that are repeated, and I've talked about them both in both of the last couple of lessons. And this is critical because this term starts setting up those dots that will connect through the next couple of major sections all the way through the end of this of this uh, chapter. In fact, this discourse is all about uh, forgiveness and restoration. And so we have to understand that that forgiveness and restoration relates back to a sin, and that sin is related to this stumbling or causing, as it's translated in the New King James, causing someone to sin in Matthew chapter 18. So let's review this just a little bit. Jesus says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And, and what he's saying is that as disciples, we need to receive other disciples because others in the body of Christ, just as we do, they represent Jesus Christ. And so there should be a welcoming of believers into a meeting of the church. There should be a welcoming of believers, maybe at times extending to hospitality, opening up your homes to those who are visiting, those who are visiting pastors or uh, professors or guest speakers in order to provide for them. And then Jesus gives this dire warning in verse 6. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And this word, uh, who causes one to sin, is a Greek word, skandalizo. Now, that's where we get our word scandal, but our word scandal doesn't have anything to do with the meaning of this word. It originally meant and described uh, a trap, baiting a trap. So if you've got a little mouse trap. And you've got a little trip switch there, and you put the cheese on it so that when the mouse hits it, it gets gets caught in the trap. That's the uh, that's the scandalon. That's the trip switch. That's the uh, trip wire. And but it really came to refer to causing something, someone to stumble. Uh, and it's used in scripture to refer to those who will lead someone else into apostasy, into false teaching. That's listed as the primary, secondary to lead them into sin and into unbelief. So the, when it, when this word is used here to translate it simply as one who causing someone to sin is, is uh, probably too broad of a category. This is causing someone to sin in a profound way where where they are completely derailed in their spiritual life. It's not causing someone to uh, to just tell a lie or causing someone to lust in their heart or to be angry or any number of sins, and they immediately recognize a sin, confess their sin, they recover. This is talking about leading someone completely away from the Lord into a path of disobedience or false teaching. 
So any so and then then what this is also talking about is the three different uh, circumstances that someone can cause a disciple to be distracted or derailed or to defect from sound doctrine. And this is the source in this verse, in verse 6, is another disciple, another alleged disciple, who causes this young disciple, this humble disciple, to be led astray. And the force of this verse is better for him to be drowned by hanging a huge millstone around his neck than to than to be guilty of this particular in, infraction. Now, our meaning for the word uh, scandalizo and scandalon is seen best in this particular verse, just the per- first part of it. And the only reason I'm using this verse is because in a poetic statement, it's, it's showing the parallel between the first line, a stumbling stone, and the second line, a rock of offense. And this is, of course, referring to Jesus as the stumbling stone or the rock of offense, but it's just showing that the meaning of scandalon here means to cause someone to stumble or to fall in their spiritual walk. So that's our understanding. It's not just any sin, but a profound sin that completely derails their spiritual life. So the verb form means to bring someone to a downfall, through the acceptance of false teaching or to sin. And the noun refers to that in, to, to someone who influences someone into wrong beliefs or to wrong action. So in these Matthew 18 examples, the focus is not just on a simple sin, but to lead someone, a disciple, far astray to completely derail them in their spiritual life. So this is a significant act that's taking place. And the reason I say this is because where we're going, where Jesus is going, once we get into verse 15, he starts talking about a a subject that is often taken to refer to church discipline. But it's often taught completely separate from the thought flow of this whole uh, th- this whole talk that Jesus has here. As Jesus communicates to the disciples about how one disciple relates to another, you can't just jerk verses 15 through 20 out of context. It, it's a natural thought flow that goes, that goes through here. So the first problem is the other disciple who leads a young, growing disciple astray and derails them in their spiritual growth. The second problem is the source of the cosmic system. I use the word cosmic and spell it with a K from the Greek word cosmos, which describes the worldly system, that system of thinking, the system of religions, the system of philosophies that are completely set against the thinking of Scripture. And so Jesus says, Woe to the world because offenses, scandalon, for offenses must come, But woe to that man. So it's always boiled down. It's an individual. It may be a teacher. It may be a professor. It may be a friend. It it may be a family member who influences somebody in terms of their thinking to to not be conformed to the world. Uh, Scripture says it were not to be conformed to the world, but this one influences the believer to be conformed to the world, to become worldly, and thus to uh, be derailed in their spiritual life. So Jesus said, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And then in verse 8, it's the personal responsibility. So it could be another growing disciple who causes the derailment. 
It could be influence from someone related to worldly thinking, philosophy, and they're derailed. Or it could be your own sin nature. And that's what's brought out here in verses 8 and 9. If your own hand or if your foot, hand or foot causes you to sin, in other words, this is part of who you are, causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, he's talking hyperbolically. Jesus isn't talking about self-mutilation here, but he's showing how dangerous your own sin nature is in tempting you and leading you astray so that you fall by the wayside and you're no longer pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So it can come from where you go or what you do or what you look at, your foot, your hand, your eye. Then we come to verse 10. Well, for those of you who weren't here last week, being cast, we did a detailed study showing that being cast into the everlasting fire is parallel to being cast into hellfire, but hellfire is a bad translation. It translates the Greek word Gehenna, which is derived from the Hebrew word Gehinom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament was where Israel got caught up into the most horrific form of, of uh, idolatry, uh, child sacrifice, where they were burning their infant children alive in the fires of the idols to Molech and to Chemosh and to some of the others. And that took place in the Valley of Hinnom. And God punished them and warned them that because of this idolatry and this horrific murder of their children, that that they would die in the Valley of Hinnom. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, that they would die and they would be buried in the Valley of Hinnom. And so the Valley of Hinnom was not a picture of eternal judgment, but a picture of temporal judgment, God's divine discipline for disobedience. And so that's what is being warned here, is that this is extremely serious to be led into sin, to follow the world system, and that it, it, it's, it's uh, uh, worthy of great divine judgment. So we're warned against that. And then there's another warning in verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, these little ones, we, we know, rec- it's not talking about a little child. He's not talking about child abuse here. He's talking about... Uh, abusing or leading another disciple astray. And he's saying, don't treat them with disrespect. It's the Greek word katafroneo, which means to despise someone, to show contempt or disregard for someone as if they are irrelevant and meaningless. So you're just looking at this person and, and, and they're trying to grow and mature as a believer and you just show contempt for them by leading them astray. So Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I pointed out last time that this verse is often used for guardian angels, that there's a guardian angel for little children. But this isn't talking about physical little children. This is talking about disciples, about believers. And that connects with Hebrews chapter 1 that also talks about angels uh, for those who will inherit eternal life. 
But I think also there's something else here. When we studied Revelation, and we studied in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, they're the well-known seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And they're basically evaluation statements and warnings to each of these seven churches. And in, in all but two of them, uh, something uh, bad is said, and in all but two of them, nothing, nothing, uh, uh, something good is said. It's always good, but the warning is to be overcomers, to do well. But, but these are all addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, the angel of the church of of, of uh, Sardis. Who's the angel of the church? And I spent time going through this to show that angel, the word angelos in scripture, always refers to either a literal physical uh, messenger, but primarily it refers to angels. It never refers to pastors. It never refers to prophets. It refers to, to angels. And I pointed out that since these are report cards, each church, each congregation has an angel assigned to it that's the recording angel. It's comparable to a a federal marshal or a court reporter in our modern courts who's recording and reporting on what is happening and what is done that is good and what is done that is not good. And so I think it, this is an angel who is watching over these disciples and reporting to the throne of God as to what is going on. They continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven, so they are the ones who are recording what is happening in relation to these young disciples so that when someone is maltreating them or leading them astray, then God will bring divine discipline to bear in that situation. And then in verse 11, we have a verse that is not in uh, some of the older manuscripts, but it's in most manuscripts. And it's an almost verbatim statement from Luke 19.10, and many people think that it's just been copied over or brought in because uh, it, it seemed to fit the context. But I think it's more likely, based on textual evidence, that it was included, although there's some uh, internal evidence where perhaps perhaps not. I, I'm not totally sure that it should be be included, but I would rather default in that direction. And we must interpret it in terms of context, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. In 1910, it's clearly talking about Christ's role to pay for the penalty of sin on the cross. But that's not the context here at all. Why, can I, why do I say that? Because he's not talking to unbelievers. He's been talking all the way through here to believers and the dangers of one believer leading another believer astray. And so in context, we see that the word saved, the word sozo in the Greek, sometimes means to deliver, to rescue from danger. Sometimes it means to heal. And often it just, here it means to rescue from the stumbling, to rescue this uh, disciple from being led astray and stumbling. And the word lost is the uh, Greek word apolumi, which is used in some context to refer to eternal perishing, to eternal punishment. But in a lot of contexts, it's about a 50-50 split. It's just talking about a physical disaster. Or it could be talking about a spiritual disaster in terms of one's spiritual life. But it's not a word that automatically means that we're talking about eternal punishment and eternal condemnation. 
So the Son of Man has come to save, to rescue those who have been uh, led astray towards self-destruction in their spiritual life. Somebody's horn was going off, now it stopped. Okay, Matthew 18, 12 to 14 then gives us a very short parable, a three-verse parable. And the point that he goes on to show is that, as we've seen in verse 10, every individual disciple is important to God. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. What matters is what God thinks about you and that every child is important. Uh, every spiritual child, that is every humbled disciple who is growing. That's why we are not to despise any one of these little ones. Every individual disciple is important to God. Every believer is important to God. And what this passage shows is God's care and concern for each believer. Now, let's put this in context because... I'm not going to get beyond verse verse um, 14. But when we get to verse 15, we're going to talk about how to handle a situation where another believer sins against you. That's just the next step in developing this. First, we're going to see how God handles a situation when a growing disciple goes by the wayside and how God initiates in his grace the search to bring them back into the fold. When we get into the next section, if one believer sins against you, this is what you are supposed to do to bring them back into the fold. It's the application of the parable. And then the next thing that happens is Peter says, well, what? Ha- how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? And Jesus says 70 times 7. So it each of these sections builds on the previous one, and we, we can't just separate them out like is so often done into individual, uh, individual statements. They must be understood together. So Jesus uses this parable, a parable that is not uh, uncommon in, in the Old Testament. It's not uncommon in the New Testament relating to a shepherd and the sheep. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? Now, let's just notice a couple of things about this particular setup. He talks about this man. The owner is also the shepherd. We'll see that in a minute. And he says, if a man has a 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, and the word for going astray is the verb Planao, and it means to go astray, to wander off, to deceive. I'm wondering if anybody here knows what English word comes from that verb. It's the word planet, because the ancient astronomers would see these certain what looked like stars, and they kind of wandered around and showed up in different places, so they were called planets. That's where this word came from. So this is describing a sheep that wanders off. But what's interesting is if you've ever seen these sheep in these pastures with the shepherds over in Israel, the sheep stay pretty much close together. The shepherds also use dogs. I don't know if they use dogs in the ancient world. 
but they're down in, in valleys and in low areas, and this sheep takes off. He doesn't just sort of wander off, and he's over in the back 40 somewhere. He's gone up into the mountains. He's taken a good hike away from everybody else. He has distanced himself significantly from the rest of the flock. So the owner shepherd has to leave the 99, and he says he goes to the mountains to seek the one that is straying. So to understand the parable, we have to identify the, the players. The shepherd owner relates to either God the Father, or it could be the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 10 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as the great, as the great shepherd of the sheep. Then we have the straying sheep. This is the disciple that has been caused to stumble, caused to sin. He is departing. He's the, 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 this little one. He's the humble disciple who, because this stumbling block has been put in front of him, is now led astray by false teaching or false, false thinking, false behavior. He represents the believer who gets off track doctrinally, gets off track theologically, gets off track spiritually, and he is now living deeply embedded in carnality. He is living according to his sin nature. As Paul puts it, he's walking according to the flesh, walking according to the sin nature. He's not confessing sin. He's not abiding in Christ. He's not walking by the Spirit. He's not walking in the light or walking in the truth. It's not that he's committed a sin and he just hasn't confessed it yet, and he will in another hour or two or later in the day, but he has completely taken off and he is left his spiritual life uh, behind him. It could also refer to some believers who think that the key in the spiritual life is just confessing sin, so they spend all day long sinning and confessing, and they're in a revolving door, and the Scripture says we're to walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, walk in the truth. Those terms, walking and abiding, imply being inside the house for a long time, whereas a lot of Christians are just at that. They've got a revolving door at the front door, and they're just spinning. They're just walking around in that revolving door. They confess in, then they sin, they confess in, they sin. They're not going to go anywhere because they're just spinning. And then you have the others that, that have just decided, well, that's not going to work, so they just take off. Now, this believer can be moral or immoral. There are a lot of believers who are out of fellowship, living according to the sin nature, and they are pretty moral because that's just their background. That's how they were trained. That's how their parents brought them up. Uh, the Pharisees were moral degenerates. They were very moral, but they were disobedient to God. They were legalistic. So you can have moral degenerates, and then I don't think I have to paint much of a picture of what an immoral degenerate is. Uh, we see lots of examples of that when we watch the news. We see the immoral degenerates at work. So uh, the, this young, humble disciple has been led astray. He's been influenced, and now he's rejected the Christian life, and he has gone off and reject, rejected God. Maybe he's just succumbed to arrogance. He succumbed to arrogance, and he succumbed to hatred, anger, resentment, bitterness. Who knows what kinds of things are dominating uh, the thinking in his soul? Uh, it could be lust. Lust could be uh, lust for pleasure. We live in a culture that is motivated by pleasure. Uh, 
by entertainment. I, I just they use pleasure and entertainment to get away from the horrors or the meaninglessness of life. Maybe they're lusting for power, for approval, for recognition. Some are using drugs and alcohol in order to deaden the pain uh, of of their lives because they're just they're just miserable. Other people are running after all kinds of different things, trying to find peace and happiness in their life rather than focusing on the Word of God. They're seeking it, especially this time of year. You have people who put a lot of false and unrealistic expectations on the family's going to get together, maybe we'll resolve some differences, things will be great, and then the family gets together and it's not so great. You have people who think that, that they're going to get certain kinds of gifts or they're going to be able to give certain kinds of gifts, and there's a focus on money and materialism and the things money can buy perhaps as a source of, of, uh, of happiness. This is the, the believer that's living on the sin nature and not seeking happiness and peace and stability from God alone. So he's out there in the mountains wandering around, and God exercises the initiative of restoration to bring them back. Now, this picture of the of God or the Lord Jesus Christ as a shepherd is used many times in Scripture. One of the most well-known relating to Jesus as the good shepherd is in John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. I'm going to go to three or four passages, and I'm just going to read and make a few comments about them. This is where Jesus identifies himself and compares himself to a shepherd. And it uses this metaphor. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. That's what we see in the parable of Matthew 18, that the shepherd is willing to leave the 99 under the care of an under-shepherd or someone else and takes off into the dangerous area of the hills and the mountains where lions and bears and, and wolves and who knows what other uh, calamities could befall them to seek the one sheep that has wandered off. That's the grace of God. Jesus says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling who doesn't have a stake in things, who doesn't own the flock and isn't going to get anything out of it, he's not the shepherd. Uh, he's <clears throat> one who do, does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. That's the false the one who's leading into false teaching, false doctrine. The hireling flees before because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Jesus said again, I am the good, good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay my, down, my life down for the sheep. The shepherd is willing to sacrifice his life for the sheep. So God is pictured in the parable in Matthew 18 as willing to encounter whatever dangers are necessary in order to find the Christian who's wandering off, the disciple who's wandering off, and restore them and bring them back. He's not seeking that one sheep in order to punish the sheep for leaving. He's seeking the sheep in order to bring them back. And there are a lot of Christians who think that they've just done things that are too great for the grace of God. God can never forgive them. And they're out there wandering around in the hills and the mountains, and God is seeking to restore them and bring them back. And he may use one of us to do that. Another picture of God as a shepherd is a well-known psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, David wrote, I shall not want. 
And we read, I shall not want. This means that God supplies our needs. For example, in Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then what we see starting in verses 2 and 3 is that God takes the grace initiative to feed us, to protect us, to restore us, and to guide us. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. This is a place where there's there's food, there's nourishment. Uh, we are to rest there where there is plenty of food. He he leads me beside the still waters. He continues to protect and provide for us and to guide us. He restores my soul so that no matter what's happened in your past, there's restoration. God can God will forgive you and God will restore you and God will provide for you. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Again, the emphasis on God guiding us, and he does this for his namesake. And then in verse 4, we read that he is the one who, who protects us even from the wolves. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then he uses his rod and his staff to protect us, to correct us, to straighten us out, to keep us in line, to keep us together. And that is a comfort to us. And then he supplies all of our needs, and that's in verses 5 and 6. And then we have one last passage. And this passage is in Ezekiel 34, and it's very similar in language and tone to the parable in Matthew 18. However, the context is different. That's the interesting thing. Jesus, I think, said a lot of things in different contexts that sound similar. For example, we saw that earlier, that the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which was lost. In the Luke 19 passage, that if you just lift that out of context, it could mean one thing or another thing. In the context of Luke 19, it's talking about justification. In the context of Matthew 18, it's talking about the restoration of those who are off the path, those who've gone into the hills. That's what this parable is illustrating. But in this passage, in Ezekiel 34:11, it focuses on God's initiative towards Israel in restoring them to the land and restoring them to their future destiny. And the grace that will restore rebellious Israel to the promise of God and to their future, uh, future the future plan that God has for them is the same grace that will restore us no matter what we've done or what has happened. In Ezekiel 34:11. Ezekiel says, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. This is God searching all over the world to bring all the Jews back to the land. But the principle is the same, and that is God's initiative to seek those who are have departed, those who have apostatized, those who are lost. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. In other words, no matter what they've done, all the disobedience, all the rejection, uh, murdering and executing God's Son who He sent to His people, but His people did not receive Him. Instead, they rejected Him and, and crucified Him. In spite of all that, God shows the grace and forgiveness 
and will bring them to their destiny. And that's true for any of us. No matter what is on our back trail, no matter what we've done, no matter what's happened, God is seeking to restore us, to forgive us, and to uh, put us back within the fold so that we can continue to grow and, and mature. And Ezekiel 34:14, he says, I will feed them in good pasture. Their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and make them lie down. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. We see the same themes there that we see in the parable in Matthew uh, 18. And in verse 13 we read, And if he should find it, that is, that God finds the one who has wandered off into the mountains, Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. That shows the positive mentality of God in bringing us back. He's not seeking to lower the boom. He's seeking to restore and to recover. Now, in closing, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. One of the things that happens in evangelical language is we take biblical language and we sort of distort it, becomes a little confused. So whenever we hear the word lost, we think of somebody who's not saved. And whenever we hear the word saved, we think of somebody who is not going to go to heaven or is going to go to heaven. But the Bible uses these terms a little differently. And in in Luke 15, there's three parables. I'm not going to go through these except just in a summary fashion. It's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each of them are lost. And there are a lot of people who go here and they say, oh, they're lost, they're not saved, and so these parables are about salvation, getting to heaven. They're not. In each case, that which was lost was previously owned by the shepherd or the woman or was part of the family of the father of the lost son. They're all talking about restoration and forgiveness. They're not talking about getting justified to go to heaven. So the first parable is similar to the parable that we just looked at. It's the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus says basically the same thing here that he does in in Matthew 18. Uh, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. The emphasis is on the joy here in the recovery. When he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, says to them, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus concludes, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's not a lost sinner. That is a someone who's already owned that goes out into the wilderness of disobedience and becomes a backslidden believer and is now being recovered. Repentance isn't for salvation. John never mentions it in the Gospel of John. Repentance is changing your mind for recovery. The parable of the lost coin is the second parable, and here's a woman who had ten silver coins. But she loses one. It falls down, goes in a crack. She can't find it. And she searches carefully and diligently until she finds it. But the coin was hers to begin with. So this is analogous to someone who's already a believer in the family of God, and then they leave in disobedience, and they're wandering out in the hills again. 
And when she's found it, what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I've found the, 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 the peace that I had lost. The emphasis is on God's joy at our recovery. That's his grace. He's not seeking to punish us and to make us miserable. He's seeking to bring us back so that there will be joy in heaven. And then the last parable is the parable of the prodigal son, as it's usually known, but it's the parable of the lost son. Uh, you know the story that a man had two sons. One of them says, Dad, I want my, I want my inheritance. So his dad gave him his inheritance and he took off and he spent it. He wasted it, gambled it away, ends up, uh, the only thing he can afford is to sleep in a, in a pigsty and to eat the same food that the pigs are eating. And he kind of comes to his senses one day and says, I need to go home. I would rather be a slave in my father's house than here. And so he co- goes home. And that's that's his confession of sin. That's his focus. I've got to go back and recognition of sin in his life. And when he comes back, his father is not holding anything over over his head. He doesn't say, well, you miserable so-and-so, why did you just lose everything? His father just rejoices because he's come back. And so the emphasis in each of these is on the joy that God has when that lost sheep is recovered not on God's desire to punish and condemn because we, we failed. And that is something that is important to understand when we go to the next development in Matthew 18, where he talks about what our attitude should be towards a, another believer who sins against us. And we'll get to that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to uh, reflect upon your grace initiative toward us, the fact that you love us and that as your children, many times we disobey you and we sin, but sometimes we just, we just leave and depart and we spend some time in carnality and yet you seek to restore us. Sometimes you woo us back. Sometimes there's some divine discipline. Sometimes it's through other believers who will uh, come to our side and challenge us with, with your grace. And, Father, we pray that we might understand this and that if anyone listening is in a position where they feel like they have departed from God, that they would realize that God is always working to call us back to himself to walk closely with him and he is not trying to uh, punish us for its own sake or to make us miserable for its own sake, but he's seeking to restore us that there will be joy in heaven over a disciple that has been restored to fellowship. Father, we pray that there's anyone listening who's not sure about their salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would recognize that what we study today is not about getting saved or getting justified, It's about how a justified believer recovers from sin. But if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid every single sin. God in his omniscience knew every sin, every failure, and he poured it out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ paid for every sin so that by trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. And that's the issue for you if you've never trusted Christ is to believe that he died for you, and immediately God gives you eternal life. He makes you a new creature in Christ, and you are eternally justified, and you can never lose that salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.